Well, welcome to the Vine. I'm, I'm Zach, one of the pastors here. If you're new here, we just want to say welcome. So glad that you're here. Um, we're so thankful for a beautiful day that we can gather and celebrate. Um, what a blessing it is. So I've asked Stephanie to come and read our scripture for today. And so if you have a Bible or a digital device, uh, please turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 32. And we're going to be looking at this today. It's a great Easter text. And if you don't have a, a Bible or a device, it'll be on the screen for you here as well. Acts two thirty-two and 33. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are, yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter at the, and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is God's word. This past week, I had the privilege of being the pastor for the funeral of my wife's grandfather. And for me, I lost my dad two years ago. And, um, you know, as an adult, I've attended a lot of funerals. And it's always a bizarre experience to stand next to that casket during the visitation. And you look down at that casket you see that body there, and you know that it's not really that person. And we don't really understand how it all works and, and the details, and we have questions. But in those moments, I'm always reminded of the hope of Easter. I'm always reminded of the hope of Easter. See, the Bible says that it's, it's good to grieve. There's nothing wrong with grieving. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Meaning, in the midst of our grief, there's yet hope. But here's the question that I want us to think about for a second. If there is no Easter, where is the hope? When you stand next to the casket, is that all that there is? Like, it's just over, just like game over. You cease to exist. You're kind of simply extinguished. Is that it really? Is it just over? Like, consider this. Consider you lived a cruel, exceedingly cruel life. And you caused the suffering of hundreds or thousands of people. And then you die. And it's just over and you get away with it. Like there's no justice. Is that really how this works? And that, that's happened a lot. In world history. Or think of the opposite. Think about living a life where you suffered unbelievably your whole life and then you die and that's just it. Sadly, that too has been the experience of many people in life. Their existence on planet Earth is kind of a nightmare. Like some people are predators, some people are prey. And it's just like the evolutionary animal kingdom, eat or be eaten, and then you die, and that's it. Really? 
That sounds like a hopeless experience. That sounds like a hopeless existence to me. But if there is no Easter, there is no resurrection from the dead, there's no hope of justice, there's no hope of resolution from the tension in this life. So what do we do? Well, we just got to accept it and do the best you can. Maybe habitually distract yourself so you don't have to face that cold, hard reality. Or figure out a way to numb yourself, anesthetize yourself. Those are pretty much the options, distraction or, or numbing. That's just an honest worldview without Easter. Not much hope. But consider this. If your heart hears that right now, and you long for something more than that, might that be a clue that there is something more than that? But the Bible says that because Easter is true, we can be people of hope. That's not the message. That's not the truth. We don't have to be resigned to a depressing existence where life is truly random and pointless and meaningless. See, Easter is all about resurrection. Easter is all about the fact that the casket is not the end. Easter is all about resurrection. It's not about the Easter bunny, as good as that is. It's not about getting all dressed up for church. I know I'm wearing a tie. A lot of you are shocked. Take a picture. (laughs) It's not about Easter egg hunts. It's not about chocolate eggs as much as I wish it were because I will shove those in my mouth by the handful, right? But those things are good, but it's not ultimately about all those things. Easter's all about resurrection. Death being swallowed up by life. Wrongs being righted. All the sad becoming untrue. The ultimate enemy being defeated. That's what Easter is all about. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus points to. For centuries, throughout the last 2,000 years, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus has been changing people's lives. And we could march person after person after person in this room and all throughout world history in front to give a testimony. But I want to tell you a story from a long, long, long time ago, especially for those of you who might not be that familiar with your Bible this morning. Uh, about a guy who had his life radically changed by the resurrection of Jesus. And his name was Peter. Now, Peter was a close friend of Jesus. Peter lived three, lo- uh, three years in close contact and community with Jesus. Where Jesus went, Peter we- went. Where, where Jesus taught, Peter was listening. Some of the most intimate moments, Jesus only brought three, three guys, Peter, James, and John. So he got a front row seat to everything that Jesus was all about for three years. And it came to the end of Jesus' time here on earth where he was going to be crucified. And, and the torture was beginning. And he was being treated with the utmost cruelty by those that were in power, the Romans. And Peter's kind of observing this from afar and going, man... I don't really know what's going on here. I don't get it all, but I don't want any part of this. I'm scared. And someone comes up to him and says, hey, aren't you with this guy who's being brutalized right now? 
and is on his way to being crucified, weren't you kind of in his gang? Weren't you kind of with him, part of the inner circle? And he's like, no, 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 not me. That was not me. He goes to the extent of calling down curses on himself, meaning if I'm lying, may I be accursed. Pretty dramatic. And he, and he radically um, just goes against everything that he knows to be true when it comes to standing up for Jesus. And then a few hours later, he feels an unbelievable sense of remorse. And Jesus is crucified alone. And then Jesus is risen from the dead. And he comes and he appears to hundreds of people, Peter being one of them. And, and, and Peter's a little nervous because he doesn't know what's going to happen because the last thing that he knows is he just denied Jesus and then Jesus was dead and now all of a sudden he's alive. What's going to happen? This is crazy. This is rocking my categories. Just the fact that he's alive now but also in light of how I betrayed him. And Jesus graciously forgives him. And here's what he says to him. Peter, here's what I want you to do. I got a job for you, Peter. I want you to feed my sheep. Now, that sounds funny to us, but all that is is a metaphor for taking care of all of those people, being a leader for all of those people that would believe in Jesus after his resurrection. Basically, I want you to be a leader over a community of people called the church, and you're going to help lead that charge. And so what we see... Post-resurrection of Jesus in the life of Peter is him doing exactly that. He has a mission with something to say and something to do. And that's partly what the book of Acts is all about from our scripture that we read this morning. The message from Peter and the first followers of Jesus was profoundly Easter-centered, resurrection-centered. The main focus of what they communicated, the main foundation for why you should believe what they said was true, was all sitting and resting on the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus, on this historical event. Something happened in history that changed everything. And that something was Easter. Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive. For them, Easter was not just one special day of the year where you get dressed up and have ham after church. It was everything. It was every day. It was the defining thing of their existence. Living in the truth of Easter was all of life, not one day a year. So that's the text that we look at this morning. One snapshot of this being illustrated in Peter's life as he's talking to a group of people. Now, let me set the stage for our text. There's a group of people who have just witnessed some miracles that have happened because the power of God, the power of Jesus, is being poured out and given to his people. And there's some people observing this, these miracles that are happening, and they don't know what's going on. So Peter stands up and he says, Let me explain. All right? And that's our text. Let's take a look at it. Starting in verse 32, he gets up to explain, and what's he start with? He starts with Easter. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves, this crowd he's talking to, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's take a look at this. Let's look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. There it is. That's the, that's the, the foundational Christian claim from day one of the existence of Christianity. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. This, 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 this truth has radically changed all of human history. You got B.C. to 80. Human history hinges on this one event. This was a everything is different now type moment. We all can relate to that, that kind of thing happening, right? Peter's trying to get this across. This is a everything is different now moment. He's not dead. He's alive. Listen, listen, I got something for you. This is a really big deal. This is really big news. We can relate to the everything is different type moment, can we not? A few people in this room might remember, most of us might not, but a few. 1945, the declaration, the war is over. You can see the front page of a newspaper. The war is over. This was an everything is different type moment. Everything's different now. Men and women returned home to families after being gone for a long period of time. Factories that used to make shoes were converted into making bullets for the war. They get to go back to making shoes. We saw a massive population explosion, the baby boom. That's my parents. Um, Men returned home and desired to grow families. There was not this crippling fear anymore that Hitler's going to take over the world. This is everything is different type moment. The declaration, the war is over. It was a time of peace. It was a time of joy. It was a time of rejoicing and and promise for the future. And about 2,000 years before this, we have another it's all different type moment. Jesus was dead, but death could not hold him. God the Father raised him from the dead. Peter's saying, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm witness to this. It's true. <clears throat> and when Peter stands up and says this in Acts chapter 2, that news demanded a response, right? Kind of like if, you, if you're living in 1945 and you hear or you read that front page and it says the war is over, what would your response have been? Would it have been apathy? Would it have been boredom? Would it have been, I wonder who's playing on TV tonight? I don't think there was TV, but um, who's on the radio tonight? You know, no, that's not going to be your response, right? Your response is going to be much more dramatic than that. Your response is going to be, my husband's coming home and it's been two years. We finally start a family. Get back to normal life. It might be, man, we've had to ration our food because everyone in this country is making sacrifices. And we don't have to do that anymore. We can eat and be merry. Because this war has been so significant, man, it's just riddled me with anxiety. Like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to my family, my kids? What kind of world are we going to raise kids in? Well, the wicked dictatorship has been toppled. Let freedom ring. Anxiety, we'll see you later. 
See, big news implies a big response, right? Earth-shattering news always brings a response. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. It's all true. You can believe it and trust him with your life. It's big news that demands a big response. What do we do now? What do we do now? And that's what Peter hears from these people. They're trying to make sense of all that's happening around them in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at what they say. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, when they heard this news, war is over, or Jesus is not dead, he's alive, it's all true. When they heard this news, we see a response, right? They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the prophets, or sorry, the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? They understand that this news implies a response. This is everything is different now type news. And check out what Peter says. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now let's break this down. This is just fundamental Christianity 101. In light of the tomb being empty, what should our response be? And Peter just lays it out. Let's look at it. Verse 38. First thing he says, repent. See it there? Repent. Now, that's not a word we use a lot in our English language. I don't walk around saying repent all, the, all that much, right? So what does that mean? Repentance simply means to turn the other way, to turn around. At the, at the etymological level, that's what it means, to turn away, to turn around. So, for example, before you knew that the tomb was empty and Jesus triumphed over death and it's all true and you can trust him, before you knew that was true, you were headed in one direction. But now, in light of this truth and in light of the response, we turn around. We repent and turn away from where we were headed and we turn towards Jesus. And in this sense, here's what it means. Before, I was facing just this way, or maybe even better yet, I was just facing myself. And all I was looking at was myself. And that was sin. I was just leading myself down the path of sin. And doing things my way. And I was the Lord. It was all about me. I'm the Lord of my life. I love my autonomy. I'm in charge. I'm going to do my thing. It's all about me. I'm just staring at myself. And repentance means to turn away from that and turn towards Jesus. And he is Lord. And I got ears to hear. I'm listening. He's worthy to be trusted, so I'm going to listen. I'm going to turn away from sin, and I'm going to turn towards Jesus. That's what repentance means. That's what he's calling these people to. In light of the tomb being empty, in light of Jesus being the real deal, and you know it's a fact because of the resurrection, you can repent. It doesn't have to be all about you and your agenda anymore. You can trust and value him above all. So that's what repentance means. That's what Peter's calling them to, to turn away from sin, to, to, to turn away from self-rule, and turn towards the glorious, life-giving, satisfying rule and reign of King Jesus. So in light of the tomb being empty, first step, repent. Repent. What, what happens then? 
And then he says this, repent and what? And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So what is baptism? Baptism is a sign, an outward physical sign of an inward reality. It's kind of like also a formal public event, kind of like a wedding ceremony. So a wedding has much meaning because it's formal and public to declare that I'm with this person and this person alone for the rest of my life. I want to make it known. I want to make it public. And I don't care who knows it. I'm all in with this person. And that's kind of what baptism is. It's an outward sign of an inner reality. Like my wedding ring. It's an outward sign of an inner reality that my wife and I are married. And when you get baptized, you demonstrate that I'm all in. I'm willing to do this publicly. That's why baptism is always public. Because we got nothing to hide. We want to declare to, to the church and our family and our friends and everyone who's willing to come that I'm in with Jesus. And I'm united to him by trusting and treasuring him and following him. And I just want to make that public. I want to declare that. Just like I stand up in, with my wife and the pastor says, you do? And I say, yeah, I do. Right? Nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. This is a public display of an inner reality. So Peter says, you know what you do in light of the, the tomb being empty? You should repent. You should be baptized. So turn away from sin. Turn towards Jesus. Align yourself with him publicly. Make it clear. And then, and then what? what? What does it say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. What? For the forgiveness of your sins. When you repent of sin, turn away from sin, turn towards Jesus, you can be assured of forgiveness of sin. This is the best news in the world. It's the best news in the world. Well, in order to know that, though, you've got to know what sin is. So what is sin? This is a hard one. In our context, in our cultural context, sometimes this is hard for us to swallow. Am I really that bad? I mean, I'm not an axe murderer. Like, what's the deal? What sin is is simply this. It's that we're not all perfect as we should be. God himself is perfect. He's the perfect standard. He doesn't grade on a curve. He grades on his holiness. He grades on his righteousness. The Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short Meaning, you might, might jump a little bit, but you can't ever jump the whole Grand Canyon, right? The ladder is too high for you to climb. You would just get exhausted. We all fall short of his glory. We all fall short of his perfection. We all fall short of his beauty and magnificence. And for God to welcome us, to follow him, to be in our presence, to be with him, Here's the deal. He can't just sweep sin under the rug and be like, ah, no big deal. I'll just give you a mulligan on this one. A mulligan. Or maybe a thousand mulligans because we sin every day. And think about it. You wouldn't want to follow a God that just swept sin under the rug and said no big deal. Especially when you've been hurt by someone. Especially when someone maybe has hurt someone you love. Would you ever call a judge righteous? that's called to preside over a case where you've been harmed, and they look at you and go, you know what, what they did was evil and wicked, but I'm just going to sweep that one under the rug. None of us would appreciate that in the least, would we? We would be enraged. 
right? So we all instinctively have an acute sense of justice. We want God. Why would we worship a God that didn't deal with sin, that wasn't a God of justice? That would be unthinkable. We have an acute sense of justice, and we want God to punish sin. We know that it's good, but here's the question. What about when we sin? What about when we sin? What about when we fall short of God? What about when we lie? What about when we try to posture up and give a a good impression because we're so desperate for acceptance? Whatever it is, what about when we sin? We all want justice, but do we want justice for ourselves? See, this is the beauty of the truth of Easter and of the gospel. Sin can be forgiven. That's what Peter's saying. You can experience the forgiveness of sin because our God is a, is a God of justice. Make no mistake. But he's not just that, like you screw up and you just wait around to get slapped. No, our God is just, but he's also patient and loving. And that's the beauty of the death of Jesus. Because God is just, he has to punish sin. We wouldn't have it any other way, right? But because God is love, he loves to provide a way of escape for those who trust him, for those who know him, for those who desire him. And so what God did It's genius. He sacrificed himself in our place, in Jesus. He's the beautiful substitute. He says, I love you so much that I will lay down my life for you and be your substitute. That's what the cross of Jesus is. That's what the death of Jesus as a fact of history 2,000 years ago is, where he took the punishment where we deserve for all of our sin, for all of our ways that we fall short, And he was nailed to the cross in our place, and he bore the the wrath of God instead of us, the glorious substitute. So justice is served. It just isn't served on us. That's the beauty of the love of God. Justice is displayed, and he is still seen as just and holy, and it's demonstrated, but also the love of God is displayed and demonstrated by allowing sinners like us to be forgiven. What worldview have you ever heard of where God himself lays down his life for those who are opposed to him? It's the height of mercy and grace. It's the height of mercy and grace. And here's the beauty. It wasn't just a a, a symbol. It wasn't just a good example. Like, look at how nice he was. No, it's all True because the tomb is empty. It's not just a hope of forgiveness. No, it's a fact of forgiveness. Forgiveness is real because Jesus said it is, and he validated it by rising from the dead so that all those who who are joined to him by faith and trust and following him are risen up as well to experience new life. So you can walk in freedom from sin. So post-resurrection, what do we do now? It's true. What do we do now? We repent. We're baptized. We experience forgiveness of sins. And then what's the last thing that he says? You'll receive, look at it there, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38. 
So what's the gift of the Holy Spirit? What's the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is this some type of possession? Well, in a sense, yes, but probably not how you typically think of it. Not like some movie-type possession where you're not in control and you don't know what you're doing. It's not that at all. It's just simply this. When you desire to turn away from sin, repentance, and turn towards Jesus, and you value him above all things, and you trust and you treasure him and you cast yourself upon his mercy and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't deal with my sin on my own. I need you to deal with it for me. I'm really needy. I'm really weak. And I'm coming to you in faith and trust. And he forgives your sin. He also gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit. And what that means is you start to be transformed. The Bible says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You start to be transformed. And what does that mean? That means new desires. That means new taste buds that start to change. Things that used to taste good, like sin, start to not taste good anymore. You start to delight in what God delights in. You start to love what God loves. You start to despise what God despises. You start to to welcome those kind of people that God welcomes. You you start to say what God says instead. In short, you just start to look like that which you're following. You start to look like him who you're following. God's will for us is that we would be transformed to look more and more like him, to look like Jesus. And that's what God's spirit does when he is alive in us and gifted to us. We start to change more and more like him. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that's all that Peter is saying this morning to this group that goes, I see the tomb is empty. It's true. We believe it. Now what do we do? He says repentance, baptism, forgiveness, receive the Holy Spirit. He's just asking these people just straight up to become Christians. That's how you become a Christian. But here's the, the thing that, that, that we trip up on. Like why would he have the audacity to say this? I mean, this claim that I know the truth, capital T truth, and y'all need to conform to it. And that's an, that's an audacious claim, right? If we do that in our culture, you know, sometimes that doesn't go very well. Well, it was the same back then, too. Isn't that kind of arrogant? Really capital T truth, and you know it, and you can tell someone else what they should believe? Well, it might be arrogant if it was false. But if it's true, and it is, It's the most loving thing you could ever do is to tell someone the truth about this earth-shattering news. If you knew the news that the war was over and your neighbor has been waiting for her husband to come home for two years and you don't share that news with her, it's almost kind of cruel, isn't it? This is news like that. This is the weightiest news the world has ever heard. And it demands a response. And Peter stands up and says, it's not arrogance, it's loving. Follow Jesus. He's worthy to be trusted. No one else has gotten out of the tomb like he has. Gandhi's still in the grave. Muhammad's still in the grave. Buddha's still in the grave. Confucius is still in the grave. Jesus is alive. It's a historical fact. And it all hinges on that. What do we do with that? How do we respond to that? 
Are you willing to come? That's what he says. Are you willing to come? And that's what we say this morning. There may be some of you, you here today that are not Christians yet. Are you willing to come? Are you willing to come? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Based on the fact that he's risen from the dead to validate it all, are you willing to come to him? Do you believe that Jesus can save you from your sins because he lovingly died for your sins so that you can come to him guilt-free and you don't have to bear the wrath of God on your own? God, God himself says, I will bear it for you. Come to me. He came to set you free from enslavement. That's all that sin is. It's just slavery. And he's come to free you from that, to change your desires. You don't have to be lost like a, like a dog chasing its tail that never arrives. You, you can be free from the enslavement of self-worship. Just constantly staring at yourself. And you can have your eyes lifted and see the grandeur of God, the glory of God, the all-satisfying beauty of knowing your creator and becoming like him. You can know for sure that your life is not a cold, dead, meaningless Pointless existence. But you have a grand purpose to your life. And that's to glorify God. To know God. To gaze upon beauty all the days of your life. To be satisfied with God. Today can be the day when you trust the message of the cross and the resurrection. Repent of your sin. Turn towards Jesus. Have your sins forgiven. Be baptized. Start to experience your life being changed in the best way possible. Are you willing to come? Maybe for the first time. And if so, I just encourage you to tell someone about it. I encourage you to tell someone about it. Maybe someone you came with today. Maybe someone with a name tag. You talk to me after the service. You talk to any of these guys up front after the service. We'd love to talk with you as you engage in this new journey of following Jesus. But maybe you're not ready yet. You got questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? Man, we'd love to talk to you. That's what we're here for. We don't, if you have questions or doubts, we don't say, get out of here. We don't smack people around that have questions or doubts. No, that's what we're here for. So bring those. It's okay. If you're in process, that's okay. We want you here. Let me speak in closing just to those of you who are Christians. Peter's message is just our model. We're called to go out and be on mission and to call people to know this news, to, to, to say the war is over. Because the tomb is empty, the war is over. And to let people know. It's the most loving thing in the world. We are ambassadors for God. Reconciliation with God is possible. You don't have to die in sin. You don't have to have a life that's ultimately pointless. You don't have to endlessly chase things that don't satisfy. Jesus has been raised. You can trust him. That's our message that we tell others. That's also the message that we tell ourselves. We never go beyond the resurrection of Jesus. Because the tomb is empty, because it's the real deal, man, we meditate on this. Sometimes I struggle as a Christian, and, and sometimes I can have doubts. I'm not a super Christian. It's kind of like I'm up here teaching the Bible. What I come back to over and over again is the resurrection. I know it's true. I can't, I can't escape it. It's my, it's my anchor. It's kind of my lighthouse when the storms are swirling around. The resurrection is meant to be the lighthouse. So Christian, return to the lighthouse. It, it's, it, it's, it's shining light 
so that you can make sense of, of the ups and downs of the crashing sea as we navigate this life. When your feet hit the floor every morning, we go, yes, I remember the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He rules and reigns. And one day he will return like he promised to make all things right. So as my feet hit the floor this morning, I can be a person of hope. The casket is not the period on your life. It's just merely a comma. And for those that know and love and trust Jesus, that transforms into a glorious, worshipful exclamation point. And we call all of us in this room today to embrace it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you so much for this news that we so cherish. Thank you that it's not just about um, our feelings that go up and down, but it's about the fact of history. That we can look back and know that it's true because you said it's true. And your people witnessed it, and they testified to it, and they gave their lives for it. And so may you make us like that. For all those here, Lord, that have questions, that are still wondering, Lord, I pray that the vine would be a safe place for that, and that we would walk through this journey together um, with you at the center. In Jesus' name, amen.